That's Luke 13, starting at verse 22. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And the people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last, some, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. So that's the letter of Jude, and we'll be starting from the beginning. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, 
the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are blemishes on your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, looking at the, after themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It is also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last times, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. On two occasions, I've witnessed a major house fire. One occasion, it was more of a hotel. There were about 45 rooms in it. It was 1977. At night, you know, the noise is one thing. The flames are altogether another. The smell and the smoke, it goes on for days. And then there's the noise of the sirens. It was actually pretty much a building site at the time of the fire, and so there was nobody inside. The other occasion was a house just opposite ours. No one knew who was in and who was out, and it was most disturbing. We come this week to perhaps the most graphic part of this short letter, 
and it contains a really very serious warning. I want us to see the destructive danger of the false teachers about whom Jude is writing. You remember he wanted to write a different letter. He says that in verse 3, but he felt compelled urgently to send off this letter because of the false teachers who were denying the faith once for all time delivered to the saints. They denied the only Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, and they perverted the grace of God into sensuality, which is sexual misconduct. So first he shows us in this part of the letter, we're looking at verse 12 through to around about verse 19, he shows us the destructive danger of these false teachers. We must, we really must contend against them. You can see from verses 12 and 13 that those who have crept into the church and are denying the face once for all time delivered to the saints are destructive because Jude uses six very graphic images, each one perfectly tailored to the situation. From verse 12, well, the text in front of you has they are blemishes. The word could equally be translated reefs. You'll see that in the footnote there. That is a hidden reef, an underwater stretch of rock unseen and unmarked by boys and lighthouses, they are fatal. Hidden below the surface, they bring shipwreck. Clearly, they're within the recognized church. They feast with the believers at their love feast. The feast, the love feast was a meal of which Christians who loved the Lord Jesus and therefore loved one another met to eat. It's kind of after eights or food at Read, Mark, Learn or something like that. Uh, and these individuals are part of the established church, recognized figures in the church, it would seem, because in verse 16, they show favoritism in order to gain advantage. So they must have had some sort of position in order to show favoritism. And Jude says they are like hidden rocks under the surface of the water. Uh, and then he describes them. Your text has looking after themselves. The word is actually shepherding themselves. It's a reference to Ezekiel, who warns about false shepherds, and the Lord Jesus, who warns of wolves in sheep's clothing. The shepherd's task was to guard and attend the flock of sheep and lead them into good pasture, but rather than serve the flock, they fleece them, the bogus bunce and bean of the church. They are waterless clouds, verse 12, and in an arid climate prone to extended drought without long-range forecast, you saw the clouds gather, your heart filled with hope, the cl cloud passed over, no rain. They promise so much. This will bring the reversal of the church's fortune if we take this new step that nobody's ever done for 2,000 years. We'll do it and the world will start to take note. They deliver nothing. They are fruitless trees in late autumn, verse 12, twice dead, uprooted. Now, by, by late autumn, we should be gathering in the apples and pears, but these trees have reached the end of the season. There's not a bean to be seen. Twice dead, I take, refers to the teachers themselves. They were dead before they heard of the Lord Jesus Christ. The message of the death and resurrection of Jesus brought them alive. Now they've rejected that message. They're twice dead and they will be uprooted. Now, with those first references, you might say, wow, what's all the fuss about? Because, you know, you're so uptight about these guys, Jude. Why does it matter if there are some people who teach their thing in the church? 
It's their view. Why shouldn't they express it? If they're fruitless, the only person they'll really impact is themselves, and they'll soon die out. But verse 13 ups the stakes. They are wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. They are wandering stars, wild waves. Have you stood on the shore at the tail end of a storm out at sea as it reaches the beach? Have you seen the way that wild waves throw up everything from underneath, not just seaweed, but stones and foam and froth and filth? The false teachers who deny the faith once delivered for all time to the saints, who pervert the grace of God into sensuality, who deny the only Lord and Master Jesus Christ and say, well, there are other voices, other ways, different views, why they impact others, they disturb and distort and destroy. The phrase casting up the foam of their own shame is so graphic, isn't it? Shame speaks of something that is disgraceful, something that brings contempt. What they believe is shameful, how they behave is shameful, what they promote is shameful, what they produce is shameful. And all of this, stirred up by the false teacher, brings contempt on the church. The final image is in an age when stars were used for navigation is very graphic. They are wandering stars, clearly not shooting stars, hard to navigate by one of those, but stars that are not fixed in their place in the sky. If there is such a thing, you try following one of those, it will leave you right off course. Those of you who were with us last week, we mentioned the Church of England. I hope you'll forgive me for mentioning this again this week. It's been very much in the news. I spoke last week of the debates in the Church of England by which the overall leaders of the Church of England are seeking to bring in prayers for the blessing of same-sex relationships. Now, this week, on Wednesday, there was an announcement that such prayers would be brought in. On Friday, the prayers themselves and the House of Bishops' theological justification for them was announced. I've read through both sets of documents The theological justification for the House of Bishops is one of the most theologically corrupt and deceitful documents I have ever read. How would Jude describe such a thing? Reefs hidden. Shepherds feeding themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by the winds. Fruitless trees. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness have been reserved forever. But just as with all the other sections of the letter that we have studied so far, Jude now follows this description of the false teachers with a statement about the destination of the false teachers. It's all part of the first point. We have this description of their destructive nature, the damage they do, and now the destination. And this is why we should take them so very seriously. And this is why we must contend. And this is why no one will really understand the stand that you take who does not truly believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And this is why we cannot rest. Verses 14 and 15. It was also about these that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with 10,000 of his holy ones, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way 
and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, Jude quotes from the book of Enoch. We don't know a huge amount about Enoch. We read of him in Genesis chapter 5. We're told that Enoch walked with God. That's all we know. We have no idea what Enoch said when he was alive or what God showed to Enoch as Enoch walked with God, nor do we know what the people of Enoch's day passed on by word of mouth, generation by generation, until it was written down as the book of Enoch. Enoch did live just before the flood, just before Noah. Did he have some idea that God was going to judge the whole world because of the wickedness that surrounded him on every side? Had God told Enoch this? We just don't know. What we do have is the book, the book of Enoch. And we have copies of that book in Aramaic, Greek, Ethiopic, and Latin, should you wish to read them. So is the prophecy of Enoch some words of Enoch himself passed on down the generations, or is it something attributed to Enoch written many centuries after he died? We don't know. But we do know that Jude, in verse 14 here, quotes directly from the book of Enoch with the change of just one word. Behold, and there's the word, Lord. Behold the Lord. So Enoch is referring to the coming judgment of God. Jude takes that and says, well, what Enoch was really writing about, foreshadowed in the flood, was the coming judgment of Jesus Christ. What the book of Enoch alluded to, the judgment of the whole world, is precisely what Jesus taught, that he was judge of the whole world. This is why this matches so perfectly onto those who deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ taught that he was God, that he is Lord, that he will return in judgment. And therefore, these false shepherds, these reefs hidden, who will lead you like a wandering star to destruction, they themselves will be taken to destruction on the day of judgment, and so will those who follow him. That's why we worry about false teaching in the church. With the faith once for all delivered, we have mercy, peace, and love multiplied to us, salvation from God. It's absolutely glorious. You depart from this revelation from God, and it's like following a wandering star onto an unmarked reef led by shepherds who simply feed themselves. Now, Jesus spoke of this coming judgment You may remember in John's gospel, Jesus said, all judgment has been given to the Son by the Father. Again in John's gospel, he says this, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear the voice of the Son of Man and come out, those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. He's coming in judgment. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says this, Concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. So you cut through Jesus' teaching, our only Lord and Master Jesus Christ. And again and again and again and again, he tells us of his coming 
in judgment. So it may seem fine to have people within the church who hold out teaching that perverts the grace of God and denies the only master and Lord Jesus Christ to the house of bishops. But the Jude, the brother of Jesus, would say, such will lead you onto the rocks and into judgment. It may seem okay that there be hidden reefs, self-serving shepherds, waterless clouds, fruitless trees, wild waves, and wandering stars. It doesn't seem okay to Jude, and not to Jude, because what Jesus taught, the faith once for all delivered, is what the apostles passed on, and what the apostles passed on is what Jude, the brother of Jesus, believed, and what Jude, the brother of Jesus, believed is what the Christian faith has always held out, and what the Christian faith once delivered to the saints has always held out is that God has set a day when he will judge the living and the dead by the man he has appointed, Jesus Christ. And so false teaching in the church really matters. It is an eternal issue of salvation. And just in case you think, oh, well, it's just Jesus in Matthew's gospel and just Jesus in John's gospel... Turn back, if you would, please, to page 1108. Keep a finger in Jude, like I say every week, otherwise you might lose him forever. Page 1108, Acts chapter 10. Here is the apostle Peter. Acts 10, 1108. This is the first sermon preached to a non-Jewish audience in the history of the church. Acts 10, verse 42, 1108. And Jesus, says Peter, commanded us, that is the apostles, to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Now, by my reckoning, the living and the dead involves absolutely everybody. You may think the person sitting next to you in the seat next door to you is not part of the set, the living and the dead, but I assure you they are. Everybody's in the set, the living and the dead. And so who did Jesus commanded Peter and the apostles to say he was coming to judge absolutely everybody who has ever lived. Now, this raises the stakes considerably. This is what Jesus taught. This is what Peter taught. This is what John taught. This is what Paul taught. This is what Jude taught. This is what the early church taught. This is what Christians across the whole world believe. This is what the whole Bible teaches And, of course, it stands to reason that we are not endlessly going round and round in circles. You know, all of us expect some form of accountability, some form of judgment. You believe in judgment. You actually think it's awful when somebody gets off without any justice being done. And right at the heart of the Christian gospel is that there is judgment. Praise God that there's judgment that history is not simply circular. We're not going aimlessly, endlessly, round and round, but history is linear. We're moving from creation to the final day of judgment and justice when Jesus returns and judges the living and the dead. We're not like David Bowie's Major Tom, not that he means anything to anybody here, I suspect, floating somewhere in the middle of uh, midair like a tin can, can far above the earth, or wherever it is he's floating. Now, this is why I and every other leader in the church of Christ made promises such as this when we were set aside to be Bible teachers. 
Are you persuaded that the Holy Scriptures contain sufficiently all doctrine required of necessity for eternal salvation through faith in Jesus Christ? Asked the bishop. I am so persuaded. Will you be ready with all faithful diligence to banish and drive away all erroneous and strange doctrines contrary to God's word? I will, the Lord being my helper. Because false teaching is so dangerous. Incidentally, a bishop makes precisely the same promise to banish all erroneous doctrine. Oh, says somebody, this is so typical. This is shock tactics. This is a sensationalist preacher trying to frighten me with the reality of hell. And the answer is, yes, it is. Yes, it is. You know, I mentioned the fires and the fire opposite us in 1993-4. In the house lived Mark. He was a heroin addict. He had a wife and two small children. And nobody knew whether he was in or out. And so people stood on the pavement outside of his house, bellowing above the noise of the flames and the crackling of wood to get him out. They were all saved. Oh, says another, you're so divisive, you people who make these kind of sermons. Well, let's move on to our second point, that these false teachers are discontented and they are divisive. So have a look at verse 16 through to 19 at this point, where Jude gives four more descriptions of the false teachers. So verse 16, they are grumblers. That is, I take it, they complain. Like the Old Testament people of God did back in Exodus and Numbers, they're unhappy with the teaching of God in his word, especially unhappy with his teaching on the uniqueness of Jesus and the moral purity that his grace demands. They don't like the idea that there's only one way to please him in the way we live, that he's holy, that he's morally pure. They don't like that, and so they grumble against God. And then they are malcontents, that is, they're unhappy. They complain about their lot. They can't accept that God is calling them to live a holy life. And repentance of the particular sin to which they are tempted is not something that they're willing to embrace. And so they follow, and it's really interesting what he says here, their own sinful desires. It's interesting, isn't it, that my desire is not necessarily pure. We speak as if I am inclined to one way of life or another way of life, as if that inclination is itself wholly pure. The Bible would disagree. From the chapter 3 of Genesis, all human desire has been perverted in one way or another. And so I may be attracted to one way of life or may be attracted to another way of life. But desire is never pure. And then they boast. And the word for boast there, they are loud mouth boasters, is actually a word for very large people. <laughs> and so they throw their weight around with their words. They produce position papers. They come up on the television and they do interviews. They blog and they WhatsApp and they tweet. They posture and they pose. And they bribe, showing favoritism to gain advantage. They use their power of patronage to place their people in privileged positions. You see that across the Church of England 
again and again and again. How many young people have I seen offered preferment if only they will behave themselves and stop giving talks like this? So there's nothing new under the sun. This has been going on for 2,000 years. There always were going to be those who pour scorn on the people of God. Look at this. Verse 17, remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles, the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passion. So people laugh at you for holding the views you hold. You get mocked in your university because you are one of those old-fashioned Bible people. People scoff at you in the pub and at work and in the hospital and, the, and so forth, and in the office. Yeah, absolutely, and that's exactly what the apostles warned us would happen. There will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. So the reason they scoff at you is that they want to live a godless life. They don't like it that there might be a voice from outside of authority speaking of a pure and holy God who will bring all to judgment. But notice verse 19, it is these who cause divisions. Well, of course it is, you see. If you stick to the faith once for all time delivered, you bring unity. If people come to the faith once for all time delivered, it brings unity. But the moment you start drifting from this objective truth, Inevitably, you bring division as you seek to splinter people off in this direction and splinter people off in this direction and the other direction and so forth. You introduce novel ideas that are contrary to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. You are the divisive one seeking to lead people off after you, devoid of the spirit and worldly. Well, we're nearly done. I'm rather surprised. I was hoping to go on much longer. But let's have a final word or two about the Church of England because it's so much in the news. I think it's helpful for us to grasp where we are. I mean, you know, I know where we are. But where we are historically. We are at the back end of 150 years, 170 years really, of teaching that has undermined the truth of the Bible. That's where we find ourselves. Following the 1850s, the Enlightenment, uh, movement, a movement began in, following the Enlightenment in the 1850s, a movement began in the German universities that was essentially rationalist. And it basically went like this. If I cannot explain something by my reason, it cannot have happened. In those days, in the German uh, uh, universities, the, 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 it was the German theologians who ruled the roost. And the German theologians were very, very strong on this rationalist theology. And the movement developed in any number of ways. But to cut a long story short, the basic argument went that anything I cannot explain by the rational argument of modern science in the Bible is clearly the invention of the early church. If it's miraculous, it can't have happened because miracles can't happen because we're rationalists and science uh, disproves miracles. And so the German theologians and those who followed them were happy to believe that there was a man called Jesus, but that he was actually God and did supernatural things 
well, no, we wouldn't have that. And therefore, he can't have been God. And this movement has impacted the whole of the modern Western church. Do you know, I went up to theological college slightly later than 1850 and took classes in the Cambridge Faculty of Divinity. And there, there was this thing called the quest for the historical Jesus. And the thesis was that the Gospels cannot have been written early because they have a high view of the divinity of Jesus. They actually suggest Jesus is God. And this can only have developed over time because the kind of things Jesus did, the miracles, they just don't happen. And therefore, the Gospels cannot have been written early. And therefore, we can't really trust the presentation of the Gospels about Jesus, and so we're on this great quest for the historical Jesus, some figure behind, who is not truly divine. How very contemporary to the people of Jude's day, who deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Most seriously, this whole movement of rational theology, it was highly irrational, by the way, but we'll talk about that another time, undermined the authority of the Bible as the faith once for all time delivered. And it was suggested that the Bible was really just a book by men, sort of inspired, but was not real truth. Alan Stibbs was a great theologian of the mid-20th century. My predecessor here, Dick Lucas, knew him very well and says that Alan Stibbs and John Stott were the ones who taught him to teach the Bible. He was a very fine Bible teacher. Mrs. Stibbs always used to sit at the back of meetings, Dick says, doing the Times crossword as he was speaking. I'm glad to say my wife has broken that habit. Listen to Alan Stibbs writing in 1940. To some, the Bible is absolutely unique and from above, God-given. To others, it is only outstanding and from beneath, man-wrought. To some, that is the ones who think it's God-given, it is and makes ours an indispensable revelation without which men cannot see the truth about God. It provides a final standard, a court of appeal, by which all claims to have found the truth can and must be judged. To others, that is those who think it's man-wrought, it is rather the product of the spiritual discernment of men of old, a discernment which by the same spirit men today may not only equal but even supersede, so that a man enlightened by the divine spirit may so discern fresh or fuller truth as to be able rightly to criticize and even to discard parts of Scripture. So you see, if you think the Bible is just kind of man, very inspired and you know, clever men's ideas about God, well, you in your age, you'll feel, well, you know, I don't really like that bit. You know, I'm going to rip it out. I won't actually rip the page out of my Bible. It's too precious. But if you think the Bible contains the faith once for all time delivered, then you will contend for it. I spoke last week about the conversation I had with an archbishop in November 2002. In that conversation, listen to this, he referred to the Bible as a touchstone. Very, very weaselly word. A touchstone. Not, a found, not the foundation stone, but a touchstone. 
We must stay in touch with it, but we have our own ideas in our age. And that is exactly where the Church of England is today. As we saw last week, there is no doubt that the Bible considers the only place for sexual activity is within a lifelong union publicly recognized between one man and one woman. It's what we call marriage. And on becoming a Christian, Christian believers take a decision to to surrender to Jesus and to repent of immorality. To suggest that same-sex sexual unions are part of God's plan for humanity, it has implications for our understanding of who humanity is of who God is, and of how God relates to men and women. But most importantly, Jude would say, it has implications for people's eternity. He speaks about the eternal chains of judgment in verse 6. He talks about the punishment of eternal fire in verse 7. He talks in verse 13 of people being reserved in the gloom of utter darkness forever. And Jude is wanting to wake us up, and Jude is wanting to warn us. And Jude is not wanting us to walk blindly on as if things like this do not matter. You may have seen the bishops of the Church of England, their statement. You may well have been unnerved. You may well encounter those in decades to come who creep in unnoticed. It'd be going on for 2,000 years. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. Remember Jude's clear description of such. Secret agents, verse 4. Dreamers, verse 8. Ignorant, verse 10. Dangerously destructive, verses 12 to 15, and wretchedly divisive, wretchedly divisive, leading people onto the rocks of eternal damnation. We must contend, and next week we'll look at how we do that.